In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler recounts his defense of Charles Romer, father of former Governor Buddy Romer and the Commissioner of Administration under Governor Edwin Edwards from 1976 to 1980. As told in his book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, Mike provides a behind-the-scenes account of what happened in one of the most famous trials in Louisiana history, a scandal known as Brylab. A tale of how the boudin was made in the 1979 Louisiana governor's race that involves state officials, the FBI, a convicted fraudster from Hollywood, and the Sicilian Mafia. It's 1980. Disco is dead, and the Reagan Revolution is still in its infancy. After serving as governor for eight years, the Cajun prince, Edwin Washington Edwards, is legally barred from running for governor due to term limits, which means it's a political free-for-all. The state was prospering with oil and gas revenues at record highs, and the next occupant of the governor's mansion was of keen interest to anyone who wanted to keep the good times rolling. In fact, there was more money spent in the 1979 Louisiana governor's race than any other non-presidential election in American history. It was a record that would stand for four years until the 1983 Louisiana governor's race. Earl K. Long once said, Don't write anything you can phone. Don't phone anything you can talk. Don't talk anything you can whisper. Don't whisper anything you can smile. Don't smile anything you could nod. Don't nod anything you can wink. This was the prime directive of Louisiana politics for the last 50 years, since the Kingfish took office in 1928. Good evening. Welcome to this edition of Louisiana, the state we're in. This week, we're devoting our entire show to an examination of the FBI's investigation into an insurance kickback scheme that has implicated a number of Louisiana officials. The code name given for that FBI probe is Brylab, short for bribery labor. The first stories on this investigation came out of Los Angeles, where a Justice Department organized crime strike force was looking into corruption of union health and welfare insurance plans. This was a sting operation, similar to the one operating in Washington, where agents posed as wealthy Arabs and reportedly caught a number of congressmen taking bribes. In the Louisiana case, the FBI agents were posing as prudential insurance agents, and reports indicate their entree into Louisiana's political circles was reputed mafia boss Carlos Marcello. It's been reported that a number of political leaders in Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana took payments in return for promises to use their influence in obtaining city or state health insurance contracts. The newspapers also reported that the key to the FBI sting operation was a Beverly Hills insurance promoter and underworld figure named Joseph Hauser. The FBI used Hauser to infiltrate Louisiana's so-called crime syndicate, which reportedly led him to a number of important politicians. But in a state that just wound up a multi-million dollar campaign for governor, many of those named are already saying that they simply thought the money paid was a campaign contribution. What we do know about the Bry Lab story at this time is at least 13 state officials, including Governor Edwards, have been called to testify before a federal grand jury. Huge media frenzy when this came down. Front page like war is declared. You know, second most powerful man in the Edwards administration. Edwards is still governor at the time. It's February of 1980, and the Louisiana state government is in the transition to the upcoming Trine administration. A deluge of scandals breaks across the country on what seems like a daily basis, 
all of them involving public officials, bribery, and FBI sting operations. With the massive FBI sting operation exposed and their business fronts revealed as fake, the U.S. Attorney's Office, led by John Voles, scrambles to get evidence and witnesses before a grand jury. One of those witnesses is Governor Edwin Edwards, with less than a month left in office. Immediately following his testimony to the grand jury, Governor Edwards spoke to the press, anxiously awaiting on the courthouse steps in New Orleans. What did he want to return for? Well, that was part of the uh, difficult thing to understand about the conversation. He, uh, uh, he talked about the state insurance program, and I asked him, well, what are you interested in? He said, well, we want a bid, and we're going to be low bidders, and we're going to save you a million dollars. And I said, well, man, you got no problems. It's going to be bid. The attorney general has said it's to be bid. A committee is handling it. I haven't contacted the committee, and I do not intend to, and I have not. Uh, if you're the low bidder, I'm sure you'll get the job. He said also they would save a million dollars, and I said, well, that's very good news. Governor Edwards was talking about a conversation he had with Joseph Hauser on the grounds of the governor's mansion a year prior. As a parade of state officials march in and out of the grand jury hearings, a story begins to take shape. Hauser, a convicted insurance con artist from California, presented himself as a legitimate big-shot agent of Prudential Insurance Company and proceeded to enter into discussions with state political figures. In reality, Hauser was directing an operation financed by the Justice Department to ensnare corrupt public officials and alleged mobster connections of Hauser's. But first, this week's top story. The FBI undercover operation known as Bry Lab produced some indictments in Louisiana this week. Named in the indictments were reputed underworld figure Carlos Marcello, former Commissioner of Administration Charles Romer, New Orleans attorney Vincent Marinello, and Washington public relations man Irving Davidson. Of the four men that were indicted, the attention focused on the two big fish. New Orleans' Carlos Marcello, the reigning head of the Sicilian mob in America. More on him in a second and North Louisiana's Charles Romer, who at the time of the alleged crime was the second most powerful official in state government, serving as Edwin Edwards's Commissioner of Administration. Romer needs a good lawyer, so he called his colleague, Bob Molina, counsel to Madison Square Garden. I didn't know Charles Romer at all. I didn't know Buddy Romer either until I got in the case. I had a good friend named Bob Molina, who I knew from Cornell and from Columbia Law School. Bob was counsel to Madison Square Garden, and when Charles Romer took over the Division of Administration, what was under the umbrella that he had was the Superdome, and he was then hired by Charles Romer to act as his consultant on trying to structure that kind of a deal, some sort of a deal, between the state and the Superdome Authority. I I remember I was in bed one morning Bobby called me on the phone and said that there's a potential Roma gets indicted. He wanted me to see if he could get Roma to hire me to represent him. And he said he'd call me back. And he did. And that was how I meet Roma. Charles Romer grew up on Scopina Plantation, a family business of 7,000 acres of cotton 10 miles south of Bossier City. On the historical marker outside, Scopina is recognized as one of the oldest plantations still operating in North Louisiana, established by a land grant when the French controlled the area, the second time. It's difficult to encapsulate the life of Charles Romer. Among other things, he worked to introduce new varieties of cotton and corn across the South. He helped organize rural electric cooperatives to parts of Louisiana that had no power. As a young man, he was a welder on the Exxon refinery construction project in Baton Rouge, and his nickname was Budgie. 
Budgie first got involved in politics as an advocate of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, an unusual and isolated position for a white man in the South. Romer would host local African-American leaders at Scopina, encouraging them to run for local office. In 1971, Edwin Edwards's record on civil rights won in the support of Budgie Romer after Budgie had interviewed several candidates at Scopina for governor. Edwards, impressed by Romer, asked him to be his campaign manager. The 1971 Edwards for Governor campaign, which was run out of the Hotel Monteleon in the French Quarter, featured brand new technology provided by Innovative Data Systems, a company Charles Romer owned. This allowed the campaign to target likely voters via Telegram, a precursor to text message outreach. Edwards would go on to pick Charles Romer as his commissioner of administration. By all accounts, he was an efficient and effective commissioner. Now, though, he was ensnared in the multi-state sting operation with connections to organized crime. Roma was a, he was not a charismatic guy at all, but he had like a computer kind of mind. And the trial of this case, when because he by that time had been indicted, in fact, he had already been indicted when I came in. I think that's, I hadn't read the paper, but that day it was announced. He viewed this whole thing as a project. And there were something in the neighborhood of 3,000, 5,000 hours of wiretap. He had it all transcribed. We had a library, I mean, a whole wall that was filled with all the transcripts. And I remember having to read conversations between Hauser and Marcello, Hauser and Charlie Romer, Hauser with the other defendants. While Charles Romer was well-known among the Baton Rouge press corps, the front-page story was Carlos Marcello. The United States government had been after Marcello for 40 years, including a brief deportation to Guatemala in 1961. That deportation would be the impetus of Marcello's grudge against the Kennedys. To this day, people believe, and with some tangible evidence, that Marcello ordered the assassination of JFK. The Marcello criminal empire spanned from Dallas to the Florida Panhandle, counting among its friends people in all walks of public life. And they could run their deals without consulting New York's La Cosa Nostra, or Chicago's The Outfit. Carlos made these friends with the help of the special pockets he had sewn into his pants, designed to hold thousands of dollars in bribe money. In the 1970s, there was no crime boss bigger than Carlos Marcello. Marcello was the subject of a multi-page story in the April 10th issue of Life magazine in 1970, with the headline that read, in part, Louisiana still jumps for mobster Marcello. From then on, he was known nationwide as an underworld figure, whose dealings were as murky as the swamps he owned. I believe Edwin was a target of the investigation, together with the other key figure in who was indicted, Carlos Marcello. And Carlos Marcello's reputation was that of the head of the mafia in Louisiana. He was in the tomato business, but the theory is that he was the head of the mafia. He had, back in the 50s, attended the Appalachian meeting of all mafia chieftains up in Appalachian, New York, at the home of Joe the Barber, Barbera. Many people were arrested when the state police raided this thing. Carlos was not one of those arrested. I don't know how he avoided it, but he did. Marcello is represented by a guy named Henry Gonzalez. The story the, may be uh, true or not. 
Traficani was supposed to be the mafia chieftain in the Tampa, Florida area. And apparently the word was owed a favor to Marcelo. And he paid it off by sending Henry Gonzalez to represent Marcelo. Marcelo would have been off saying taking the 50 cents on the dollar and getting a real lawyer because Henry was not. Mike prepares for trial, reading the voluminous transcripts of the tape recordings made by FBI informant Joseph Hauser. Hauser came to be an informant of the FBI by way of a cooperation agreement, after having pled guilty to charges of bribery, conspiracy, and racketeering. In exchange for his help in the planning and execution of a nationwide bribery and political operation, Hauser would receive a reduced sentence on insurance fraud charges. Hauser is a scam artist who was in the insurance business, had been indicted and convicted, and the FBI had gotten their hands on him and turned him into an informant. Basically, Hauser ended up scamming the FBI. He was able to convince the FBI that everything he had to say was the truth. And he was smarter, actually, than these two FBI clowns who worked with him. Hauser sold the FBI of setting up this phony insurance company under the umbrella of Prudential Insurance, and they got the Prudential Company to permit them to use the name or to set up, make cards reflecting it. They opened an office, and they wanted to be able to sell to the state some type of insurance policy. And Hauser had come up with numbers as to what the premiums would generate, and the state would be saved a great deal of money by doing this. Hauser knew a man named Irving Davidson. Davidson was a lobbyist out of Washington, D.C., known for being a door opener and arranger for people, including nefarious ones. Hauser and Davidson's first partnership in 1975 led to a successful scheme defrauding a Teamsters health and welfare fund out of millions of dollars. Hauser would testify to making payments of $250,000 as a, quote, finder's fee for his accomplices in the Teamsters health and welfare scheme. Davidson is the man who knew Carlos Marcello and arranged the meeting between Hauser and Marcello. In fact, Davidson had introduced Hauser to Marcello in 1976. That meeting led to Marcello's participation in a successful scheme to help Hauser gain control of the National American Life Insurance Company of Baton Rouge. Ironically, the Baton Rouge scheme is what triggered the SEC investigation of Hauser, resulting in Hauser pleading guilty to charges of bribery, conspiracy, and racketeering in Arizona in 1979. For his role in the Brylab scheme, Davidson was also indicted with the RICO charges. Marcello was very impressed that these guys were affiliated with Prudential. Marcello didn't know what Roma knew, namely that the numbers these guys were throwing around on a state insurance contract were off the wall. It would never happen. But Marcella was impressed with the idea they represented Prudential. In fact, there were business cards with Prudential on it that were introduced during the trial. And if you used the numbers Hauser was throwing around, it would have saved the state an incredible amount of money. And for that purpose, the fact that Marcella might got a piece of the action, there was no crime. I mean, that Marcello didn't look at it as anything illegal. That's Marcello. Roma, on the other hand, is in it to raise money for Mouton. Sonny Mouton was an attorney, an accomplished state senator from Lafayette, who was the principal author of legislation creating the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, also known as CODAFIL. 
This endeared him to Acadiana, and when he ran for governor in 1979, he campaigned as the Cajun candidate. In Louisiana's new jungle primary system, Mouton would not be the only Democratic candidate. There were six others, including a man named Louis Lambert, who would make the runoff against Dave Treen. Lambert, who Governor Edwards supported, had actually introduced the governor to Joseph Hauser. After leaving the grand jury, Edwards answered questions about Hauser on the courthouse steps. Did Mr. Lambert ask you to do any favors for Mr. Hauser? He did not. He just asked me to talk to him and, and uh, discuss the possibility of campaign contribution. We had uh, there were three or four elements of the conversation. Uh, to be very honest with you, it, uh, although he identified himself as a prudential insurance agent, it did not take me long to ascertain that he was not an insurance agent. Um, I had reason to believe, and I will not tell you how, that he had uh, underworld connections, and therefore I was very careful with, with, with the way I talked to him, guarded in my conversation. I played games with him. Uh, I led him to uh, believe certain things that I thought he wanted to believe. Uh, I did not know at the time that he was wired and playing games with me, but we were playing games with each other. When I got through talking to him, because I was very concerned about what I... Uh, what his motive was, where he was coming from, and where he was going, because it was obvious to me that he was telling me things that didn't make sense and were unrealistic. I had a brief meeting at some subsequent date with uh, and the Superintendent of State Police, and with Judge Reggie, my executive counsel, and uh, we agreed that if the man did come back in order to try to nail it down, whatever games he was playing, and remember, I did not then know he was an undercover agent, uh, we were going to arrange to uh, record the conversation ourselves. We'd have had kind of a double sting there. Uh, but as I said before, he never got back. Did he ever tell you that uh, he gave money to Mr. Romer? No, he did not. During the investigation, it's discovered that Hauser also gave money to Lambert in exchange for tickets to a fundraising event, which therefore was not a bribe. Romer was coming at this from a very different perspective. Being the intelligent numbers-oriented kind of person. Charles Roman knew almost immediately the numbers that Hauser was proposing were off the wall. They made no sense. But what he was interested in getting from these ostensibly legitimate insurance people was a campaign contribution. And he was perfectly willing to, in offense, say that he would get involved in trying to help them get the contract he needed some money up front, and he ultimately was paid $25,000 with taxpayer money, quite candidly, as upfront money. There was no question he got 25000 10000 in one chunk and fifteen in another. Under Louisiana law, somebody could be theoretically looking to bribe you or bribe a Roma. So long as Roma did not have the intent to commit a crime, it's not bribery under Louisiana law. So the whole thing had to do with what the state of mind of Charles Roma was. Roma knew he's never going to get 50000 It was not a deal that would ever be sold to the state. He was not going to have any part of this nonsensical plan, but he's only too happy to take the 25000 up front the field of potential candidates was large. The available money was being spread around. And by the way, all of this was tape recorded by Hauser. The meetings with Marcello, the meetings with Roma, all tape recorded. 
The fact of the matter is, once he got to 25000 he was not making himself available to Hauser in any way. And on the tape, it's memorialized, Hauser's bitching to Marcelo that he can't get a hold of Roma ever since he gave him the 25000 which is so, because Roma got the 25000 and he knew that was going to be all he'd ever see. Part of the problem is the 25000 ever went into a campaign disclosure report. There was a lot of expenses that Roma was incurring in the course of running this campaign, and he was allowed to offset it, but it still should have been on the report, which it did after the fact. Unfortunately, it was after the fact. Marcello even told Hauser that he might be ripped off by politicians. During the trial... A tape was played where Marcello said, I know better than you, man, about, about them politicians. They take your fucking money, man. They, they tell you goodbye, man. I, I remember I put $2,000 in McKethan's pocket. I hate the motherfucker. Take my money and, and, and don't do nothing for me. I went with him before when he, when he was nothing. I had, I had McKethan for eight years. That son of a bitch got $168,000 of my money. And then, and then the son of a bitch too scared to talk to me. How do you like that shit? Edwin Edwards knew the numbers didn't work either and told the world on the courthouse steps. Because he was talking about $50,000 a month in cash. And that equates to $600,000 a year. And anybody who knows anything at all about the program knows it doesn't generate enough money to pay off anybody. Then. And that was the crux of the thing that tipped you off. That, that, was, that was one of the several things that convinced me that this fella's not for real. I don't know what you're doing here. I said to myself, I don't know what you're trying to get at. I don't know who you're trying to embarrass or what your underworld efforts are, but one thing is certain, I know you're not on any legitimate deal to work something out on insurance because your figures are way out of line. The trial of Carlos Marcello, Charles Romer, Erwin Davidson, and Vincent Marinello began on March 31st, 1981 in New Orleans. During the trial, the knowledge of the bogus numbers presented by Hauser would not be the only dent in his credibility. This was a case of this FBI accepting the word of Hauser. They did not understand that the proposal, the insurance proposal, they didn't even have the smart to understand how outrageously unworkable the proposal was. There were things he did that you have recorded on tape. There was a great incident, a funny one, where Hauser goes to the bathroom during the course of one of these meetings, but he's still wearing his recording device, so he's being recorded. And he's standing in front of a urinal, and he's pretending that he's talking to another human being. I don't know if it was supposed to be talking to Roma or who. He was talking to no one. He was making up this conversation that was incriminatory. At the trial, we were able to prove that it was just a phony conversation. But he sold the legitimacy of that conversation to Montague and Wax. I think I cross-examined him for three, four days, according to my recollection. There was some testimony he had given in terms of his background, like he had escaped from the Nazi Germany or something, and I had a map of where all the Nazi prison camps were. I think Hauser assumed that nobody would be able to disprove what went on in Germany during World War II. But I remember I had a map, and it pinpointed Dachau and Treblinka and all the different camps that he had said he was at, which was nonsense. Hauser's solo discussions became known as Hauser's soliloquies at trial. Notably, for the defense, 
was a tape of gubernatorial candidate Louis Lampert's meeting with Hauser. In court, jurors heard a tape of Lambert accepting $10,000 in exchange for tickets to a campaign fundraising dinner. Hauser tries to reject the tickets before Lambert chastises him, saying, You take the goddamn tickets and then we've done it the right way. That scares you, but you just have to learn. We've got a new policy. Hauser accepts. After Lambert could be heard exiting the room to retrieve the tickets, Hauser proceeds to stage a fake conversation in which he explicitly calls the exchange a kickback on the tape while no one else is even present. Then, Lambert can be heard entering the room again, telling Hauser to take the goddamn tickets. That new policy, incidentally, is still how it's done. Mike's handwritten opening statement summed up the entirety of the case for Romer's defense that he would present over the next four months. We submit to you that the indictment in what it attempts to present concerning Charles Romer is a blatant distortion of the truth. Not because I say so, but because all the evidence, not simply that which the government carefully culls for your listing, will prove to be so. You will see that the distortion of which I speak is the result of the government's viewing of evidence in a vacuum, oblivious to the context in which they occur and refusing to recognize that by putting events in context as you must, you alter the meaning of the events themselves. Second, and equally significant, is that there are certain factors which make this case different from any other criminal case. What are they? One, the evidence will show there was no crime until the FBI decided to create one. Second, the evidence will show that before a single event occurred, the FBI schemed, quote, to criminally involve, close quote, union officials and political figures in wrongdoing. Third, the evidence will show the government orchestrated and manipulated events to fit their preconceived purpose. Fourth, the evidence will show they cavalierly lied, misrepresented, and violated the criminal law to accomplish their end. Fifth, and as the evidence will show, their plan depended upon the willing cooperation of an amoral scoundrel, Joseph Hauser, a man known to the FBI prior to February 79 as a notorious con artist, a liar, and a thief. But in February 1979, they saw fit to make a pact with this man, which, as the evidence will show, permitted him to engage in the greatest con job of his life. He conned the government. He not only walked away from a potential prison sentence of more than 50 years, but he got the FBI to pay him over $50,000 in United States tax dollars. Just so there is no doubt about it, Charles Romer received $25,000 from Hauser, but it was a campaign contribution, understood as such by Hauser, by FBI agents Wax and Montague, accepted as such by Charles Romer, and used by him to defray campaign expenses, just as he was empowered to do by Sonny Mouton. What proof is there of this? The very best. The words of Hauser, Wax, and Montague on the tapes, talking to each other and to Carlos Marcello. Only the government denies it was a contribution. Why? Because it destroys their case? and because it means admitting that Charles Romer saw through Joe Hauser and in the best tradition of political fundraisers hit him up for as large a campaign contribution as he could, promising him what everyone with any sense knew. A, 
that Charles Roman could do nothing for Hauser with respect to the state insurance contract in question. B, that Charles Roman put absolutely no credence in Hauser's offer to split $1 million in monthly installments if he got him the contract, because the yearly net profit to the insurance company came to less than one-third of this amount. Hauser didn't know this, Wax didn't know this, Montague didn't know this, but Charles Roman did. And so did anyone with any real knowledge of the Louisiana Group Insurance Program. The evidence will show none of these facts were known to Hauser or the two FBI agents. Indeed, as you will see, none of the three had the vaguest notion about the state insurance program. It made no difference to them. All they were interested in, as the tapes make clear, was putting money in the hands of public officials and calling it a bribe. As the evidence in this case will also show, for years, political candidates have sought Carlos Marcelo's support. No one did it publicly, but in political circles, the conventional wisdom said Marcelo's support meant votes. The 1979 governor's race was no different. You see, Charles Roma viewed Carlos Marcel as someone who could help swing votes to Mouton and could open doors to large campaign contributors. That's the end of the story. Roma never took one penny to use his influence and never intended to take one illicit penny. He worked Hauser for a $25,000 campaign contribution, letting Hauser believe what he wanted to. From the government's point of view, it's okay for Hauser and the agents to try to con Charlie Roma into committing a crime, but they can't live with the fact that Roma simply outmaneuvered them. That sticks in their craw. Ladies and gentlemen, Charles Roma is not the only political figure approached by Hauser. The evidence will show that others were as well. The rest of them dealt with Hauser precisely the same way as Roma. Knowing Hauser was talking nonsense, they strung him along by promising him the moon in order to extract a campaign contribution from him. The proof will show one of them dealt with Hauser just as Roma did. His name is quite well known to you. It was your governor, Edwin Edwards. The evidence will show that Hauser approached Edwards and sought the same commitment from him that he sought from Roma throwing around the same ludicrous numbers. Edwards dealt with Hauser in the same way Roma had. He, too, knew Hauser's numbers were off the wall, but he promised him the moon and got Hauser to deliver a $25,000 contribution to Lewis Lambert, the man Edwards supported in the runoff to the election. Three months into the trial, an issue arose with the jury. During the trial, we had jurors who during, as you might expect, during a 17-week trial, they became friendly with one another. There are two women who got very friendly. In fact, they used to come into court wearing similar outfits. I mean, it just the same as if they were coming in as sisters wearing the same outfits. And we got the, I don't know, I don't know what was, maybe it was the lighthearted body language of them, but we had a sense that they were our jurors. I think the government had the same impression. And apparently these women at times after court would go out or they'd meet and they may go to a bar or a restaurant, whatever it was. One day we go to the bench or in chambers, 
says we need to have a hearing because there's some issue in terms of a juror being overheard saying some things that were improper. It was overheard by an FBI agent who's undercover in an unrelated case. The judge decides, okay, have a hearing with, let him testify what he knows. We'll do it at five o'clock tonight. So court's over at 4.30, quarter to five, and we're now waiting to have this guy brought into the courtroom. Buddy Lemon and I, standing at a window overlooking Poydra Street, and we look down, and there's Al Winters, an assistant U.S. attorney involved in the case, with some other assistant, and between them, they're walking a guy across the street with a Schwegman bag over his head so that he couldn't be identified. There were holes in the bag. And Buddy and I are looking, and we're sort of figuring out that that must be the guy who they're going to put on the stand. Sure enough, they do, with the bag on his head. And Buddy and I are screaming about this, judge being the judge, had no part of it. And the guy tells this story that he happened, quote-unquote, to be in a bar in in a booth next to these two women, heard them talking about the trial. And later that same night, he just happened to be at another bar they were at where they were saying this thing. And Buddy and I are having to then cross-examine this clown with this bag over his head, you know, so which is contrary to the part of the reason we have witnesses is you can evaluate their credibility not only by what they say, but their body language. But to make long story short, we cross-examined them and the judge disqualified the two women. On August 4th, 1981, Irvin Davidson and Vincent Marinello were acquitted on all counts. Charles Romer and Carlos Marcello were also acquitted on all charges, except for one, conspiracy to commit mail fraud. Critically, Romer did not characterize the money as a campaign contribution on tape with Hauser, unlike Louis Lambert. The tapes of Marcello were even worse. Having already been outed as a mobster publicly in the media, most notably in that multi-page spread in Life magazine, and now acting like a mobster on tape in court. The problem with the case was Marcello. I mean, being able to get a jury that would get past the idea of an acquittal or not convicting Marcello was really a problem. They were acquitted of everything else. So ultimately, after Charles Roma had served, I don't know, 18 months of a sentence, I think he got a two-year sentence of which he served 18 months. Marcello got a seven-year sentence, and it was at the very latter portions, last two years of his sentence, that his conviction was reversed. Buddy Relman handled it on behalf of Carlos, and he was successful on appeal in getting the conviction of Marcello and, in effect, Roma reversed on the only count in which they had been convicted of, which is the RICO conspiracy count. And so that this eight-year odyssey to entrap and ensnare Romer and Marcello in a case came to naught, except we spent, we the public, spent a lot of money for no reason. In 1989, after the United States Supreme Court ruled in McNally versus United States, making it clear that schemes like Brylab, intending to defraud citizens of their intangible right to honest and impartial government, were not included in the mail fraud statute. Defendants convicted of mail fraud must have deprived citizens 
of actual property or money. This ruling led to Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals overturning both Charles Romer and Carlos Marcello's convictions because their cases now lacked the predicate acts to support a racketeering conviction. There's more details in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and on Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in New Orleans, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief. Special thanks to New Orleans actor Brian Collins for playing the role of Carlos Marcello. On behalf of myself and my producer Ben Collinsworth, thanks for listening.